Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. If you have that outline sheet, we have three questions to finish out the questions that were offered. And let me just compliment our congregation. Uh, I've done this exercise before and sometimes thought, well, no offense, but can't we have some better questions? And this time the questions are like, ah, <laughs> maybe some easier questions would be nice. Uh, but it's been a blessing to me. I, I, I think we learn more by being asked questions than just being left alone. Uh, by being asked, asked questions, it gives me the responsibility of researching and thinking through things that honestly I've never thought through before, and that's where we start this evening when it comes to the question, should Christian couples consider technologies uh, such as in vitro fertilization or surrogacy or egg uh, donation? So we're going to begin as God begins in Genesis 1 and verse 27. God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God made he them, male and female. And in Genesis chapter 9, uh, you recall that God says with regard to man after the flood in Genesis 9 and verse 6, that those who take man's blood by men shall their life be taken. Why? because we're made in the image of God. And so even entering into this question, we need to enter in with a very high value on life. And that's what we're dealing with when it comes to this question. We're dealing with questions of life and with respect and regard to God who's the creator of life. No man has that power. We look at this question knowing that science has brought us to this precipice, if you will. Science has brought us to places today that we could not have imagined even 50 years ago. So we're going to begin with a premise as we start an answer to this question. Should we consider, Christian couples consider technologies such as in vitro fertilization? We begin with this premise. When there is an embryo, there is a human. And there's a human life. So we're going to begin with that premise because when we're talking in vitro, we're talking about an embryo uh, being made uh, by uh, science putting together uh, the male and the female and making that embryo, that life uh, to begin. So it's a challenging question. Why? Because today in medical science, the topic of in vitro fertilization is a topic that's fraught with this particular challenge. Not every embryo is going to survive. And so knowing that, we know that there'll be loss. Some of the loss comes simply in seeking to transfer that embryo into the womb. Not all of those embryos in the transfer process will implant. And we know that that occurs naturally. And so very much like a natural failure to implant, that can happen when uh, scientists are seeking or doctors are seeking to aid in that fertilization process. The greater challenge with in vitro fertilization comes when uh, medical doctors and scientists will deem some embryos to be of insufficient quality for implantation. So many embryos may have been created some are of sufficient quality to be implanted, 
and they may just spontaneously not implant. As we said, that happens naturally as well. What about those who are seen under a microscope as of insufficient quality even to be implanted? Well, there we have another question. In many people's minds, there would be the answer, well, that happens in nature as well. We may not be able to study it and diagnose it under a microscope as we can or people do in preparation for in vitro fertilization, but reality is uh, where there is conception and an embryo formed, uh, not all of those are going to be of sufficient quality or strength uh, to implant, and so uh, we have both of those things happening. But the greater challenge that Christian couples face is the number of embryos being created and then the question of, will all of them be implanted? And reality in the times in which we're now living is there's an abundance of embryos that have been created and not all of them will be implanted. And at that point, uh, there's a question that every Christian couple is going to have to wrestle with. And that needs to be wrestled with with people who have greater minds and greater backgrounds than I. We have a responsibility for every life. We have a responsibility for the preservation of every life. We have a responsibility to carefully understand that simply because that new life is only two cells, yet it's a life created in the image of God. And so when there are embryos created that are not given a chance for uh, being implanted, uh, there's a challenge that some are going to have to deal with. So long and short of the, of the answer is respecting the fact that every embryo is a life, every Christian couple should be coming toward the question that is being asked with great care to respect every single life created and to, with doctor's advisement, assure that to the best of their ability, every single life is cared for and given a chance. So that's the first part of the question. The second part of the question is surrogacy. Surrogacy. And I would just come at the topic of surrogacy and say if a believer views surrogacy simply as helping care for someone else's child, I think surrogacy is indeed a short-term, while nine months might not be, seem short to the one who's carrying that child, but it's a short-term care for someone else's child, that's surrogacy. And in truth, that happens in many different ways. It can, it's happening right now in the NICU units all around Indianapolis, where mothers and fathers have entrusted the little lives of their little ones to nurses and doctors to care for them. In surrogacy, there's the entrustment of that life that is going to ultimately be the child of someone else in the womb, and so there's an intimate care for that little one. But reality is, humanity, much by the grace of God, has cared for the little ones of others. Uh, right now, we're facing this shortage of um, infant formula. Uh, back generations ago, that challenge would not have been known because there would have been wet nurses. And the wet nurses were what? They were becoming surrogate suppliers, if you will, for little ones who were in need. So uh, surrogacy, I see as something of a temporary dependence. And while I know there are many ethical questions that surround it and uh, many cautions that need to be given specifically to uh, who's going to be doing this and what are the legal documents drawn up because there is an attachment that often comes, uh, I'm not terribly troubled uh, by surrogacy from a biblical perspective. I see it much in the same vein 
as someone else caring for the life of someone else's child. And then the final part of the question having to do with egg donation really goes back to the first uh, part of the question, which is, again, in vitro fertilization, as we've noted, the, the problem can be the care for embryos who may not have uh, the chance to be implanted. And the unclaimed embryo problem is the problem of the whole in vitro science today. The other problem that comes along, and I'll just allude to this quickly, is the harvesting of the male reproductive cells. In the harvesting of those male reproductive cells, there's a caution that ought to be given to Christian couples. And the caution ought to be, be sure that you're always valuing God's moral standards in the harvesting of those male reproductive cells. Follow-up questions. Some have lots more experience on this than I. Jay. Surrogacy, what about the opposite? Christian couple who conceives and has someone else carry the child. Yeah, Jay's asking, and I, I think I was applying it both directions, Jay. He's saying, what about a Christian couple who's provided for the conception and has someone else care for the child. I, I don't see a problem with it either way. I, th I think with the Christian couples carrying someone else's child or the Christian couple has someone else carrying their child, I, I don't see a, a, a problem with it either way. Yeah. Other questions? Oh, yes, Mary? I was going to say we just recently experienced the joy of this. Yes. Amen. So, so what you're referencing there, and that's very good. Thank you for that, Mary. Mary is really referencing the adoption of an embryo and providing that. And I think that's a wonderful Christian uh, directive. Uh, that's, that's, thank you for that. Uh, I was not really enlarging at that side, but that's a, you're exactly right. There are an abundance of embryos that are not being given the chance. And for a Christian couple to come along and provide for that adoption, I think is a wonderful Wonderful thing. Others? Got quiet on that question, didn't it? Maybe it's just me. Linda, oh, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> go ahead. Right. So my wife is saying if a Christian couple had numerous embryos but did not have the capacity, uh, let's say, to have all of those children themselves, would they not have a responsibility that those embryos be adopted into a Christian family? And I would say absolutely. Uh, so again, along the way, uh, those are some of the thoughts and considerations. Is that possible? That's something I don't know. Is that a possible alternative to people in having that kind of stewardship? I don't know the answer to that question, and I'm sure some others would have better. John? What about the case where some mother simply does not want to, to have the pregnancy for nine months and wants uh -huh. to rent that out, uh -huh. as it were, to some other womb? Yeah, John's asking, what about a mother who'd rather not go through the, uh, the whole stretch mark experience? He didn't really say it that way, but I'm kind of embellishing it a little bit, uh, and wants to rent out that womb during that time. Uh, 
I'd be troubled by that because parenting, as all who have entered into that capacity know, is a very selfless thing that doesn't end with nine months. Uh, and I think that nine months of selflessness in many ways is preparatory to good motherhood. And so I, I, I think that would be an unwise direction and kind of a self-centered direction to begin with. Yeah. Well, there are all kinds of questions that just kind of mushroom off of that. But as you think about it, one, we thank the Lord for the stewardship and responsibility of life. And two, we thank the Lord for all those Christian parents and non-Christian parents who value the, the treasure of being parents. And we recognize that along the way, that which is most valuable to us and most dear to us needs to be stewarded with the greatest amount of wisdom because those kind of treasures can also bring greatest heartache. And so for one another, we ought to be praying that our virtues uh, will be maintained and there'll be biblical virtues in the midst of a very interesting time where we're asking questions that our forefathers and foremothers did not have to ask. And so we need to ask them with great prayer and consideration. So how should a Christian respond when asked at school or on the job to identify their preferred pronouns? Is this actually a tempest in a teapot or is it acquiescing to contemporary transgender ideology? So like I said, the questions have been really interesting this time. You know, the challenge of what we're called is not new. I was thinking about this and realizing that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Belteshazzar were not favored names by four young Hebrew men who were taken out of their homes in Judah and transported to Babylon. Of course, Daniel means God is my judge, and the name that he was given was Belteshazzar, may Baal protect your life. Hananiah's Hebrew name meant Yahweh is gracious. They called him Shadrach, which means under the command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, his Hebrew name means who is what God is. They called him Meshach when he came into Babylon, which means who is what Aku, the moon god, is. And Azariah, whom Yahweh helps, and they called him Abednego, servant of their god Nebo. I have a dear friend, we support my dear friend G.S. Nair, who's a missionary to India. He goes by G.S. because both of his Indian names are names of Hindu gods. And so he's just shortened it for purposes of Christians uh, to accept him more, more widely to G.S. So we've had challenges with what we're called for generations. How should Christians respond, though, when asked at school or on the job to identify their preferred pronouns? Well, identify them. Uh, I'm Chuck. You can call me he or him or refer to what I possess as his. Any questions? Um, wow, that's weird. <laughs> no, that's, that's normal. Okay, the bigger question is, how do you respond when you're being told to call that person she and it's a him, right? That's the bigger thing. And on that one, learn to memorize names so you never have to call a personal pronoun, okay? If you've learned the person's name. Well, what if he has taken a girl's name? Call him by a girl's name. 
but I'd be avoiding the personal pronouns as if I can. And I know I get myself in trouble with that answer with the PR departments. And you're going to have to be sensitive in your various workplaces, right? Anybody going through that in their workplace? Yeah, there's some hands around. Yeah. Seeing it, don't have to. It's a personal thing. Yes, Lee? Okay, birth gender. What is your current current gender? What is the pronoun that you like? What is the pronoun that you want? And that was on the doctor's form and you questionnaire Yeah. Well the eye doctor wanted to know that. Well Yep. Well, just prepare to be uncomfortable, right? Ruth? Yeah, so first of all, it is a blessing to be able to glorify God by embracing the gender that he assigned me. Amen. So I'm very proud when somebody asked me my pronouns to say, I'm a woman. Amen. And I'm assigned to be so pretty. And the other thing is, <laughs> I agree with your point about memorizing names, because no one's ever offended if you use their name. And on the contrary, it, it reminds them and you that you think they're a person yes. and they're valuable as a person yes. whatever they, lifestyle they've chosen whatever they're into that doesn't align with God's work they're a human being made in the image of God and so we assign the name and we know the name yep. yeah if you can get the name you might avoid a whole lot of quandary along the way so work really hard at the people who want to be called by different gender identities and uh, know their name might seem simplistic but that's where I'd start yes when we were building a hospital, a teaching hospital down in Bloomington, uh, down there for two years, when they started finishing out, they had um, all gender restrooms in the hospital, in a teaching hospital. So this is a student hospital. So, I mean, where do you, where do you draw the line with, with that, I guess? When you're teaching basic biology and uh, really basic biology to, to students who are in a college level, they're seeing this as it's okay. It's, it's yeah. So, Vern's talking about. Yeah, he's, he was involved in a construction project building a teaching hospital uh, down in the south part of the state where the restrooms were uh, gender neutral. And the confusion of how is it possible that these who are prof studying to be professionals in the medical sphere and studying biology on an intense level when the restrooms are used, I don't know, Vern, other than just to say, you know, and yeah, and we don't want to become desensitized to what is really sensitive, which is we are created in the image of God, male and female created he them, period, that's it, end of the story, uh, the DNA is going to tell you that, um, everything's going to tell you that, and yet we have a world that's very confused uh, with a lot of gender dysphoria, and uh, the good news is, when a person comes to Christ as Savior, and God's Word begins to work in the heart, old things pass away and all things become new. Um, I remember one time somebody said to me, I've heard this many times, um, oh, pastor, you pastor such a perfect church. I don't fit in. 
And I stood up on that particular Sunday morning feeling kind of bad. Man, I hope we're not all so perfect that people feel kind of in the community left out or something, you know. And I stood up and looked out of the congregation. And because I'm a pastor, I knew things that other people don't know. And some of what I knew was how many people in that congregation had wrestled with matters like homosexuality and lesbianism, how many had wrestled with matters like uh, abortion and, uh, and adultery and divorce. In fact, that very morning as I looked around, there were five couples that were around the auditorium in various spots that used to be married to each other. And I rejoiced. I rejoiced. Our churches ought to be resemblances of our community, but saved by grace. We ought to be a hospital where people can know that God's grace can change everything. And so it's been my privilege to know some who have come out of homosexuality and lesbianism and walk with the Lord with honest hearts and great, great joy. So that's the only hope there is, right? Uh, because the world says, well, that's who you were, that's who you are, that's who you're going to be. That's hopelessness. Uh, reality is there's hope in Christ and God created us male and female. So what's the full story of Balaam? He seems to both listen to God and be condemned. And I put this one off, so let's end with this, all right? Go, go back with me to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. And I'm going to race through this text, all right? Numbers chapter 22 to come to some measure of conclusion. In Numbers chapter 22, there are ambassadors that are sent from the king of Moab to this man by the name of Balaam. Verse 1, and the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side of Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was sore afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, the Midianites and the Moabites were in league together. They hung out together. And so they spoke, now shall this company lick up all that are round about us as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. So he sent messengers therefore unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of the people, to call him, saying, Behold, there's a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. And so Balaam was a well-known prophet in the land of Mesopotamia, and Balak, the king of the Moabites, seeing all these Israelites coming out of Egypt and realizing, man, they're, they're just going to take over the whole land. He calls for Balaam. He wants to get help from this, um, this prophet. And we discover immediately the error of Balaam beginning in verse 8. As the elders of Moab, verse 7, and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand, they came unto Balaam. They spake unto him the words of Balak. And so Balaam responds, saying, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent me, or sent unto me, sent them unto me, saying, Behold, there's a people come out of Egypt, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them, peradventure. I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse 
the people, for they are blessed. And as we read, Balaam rose up in the morning, and he said unto the princes of Balak, Get you unto your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. Okay, mistake number one. Did you see what it was? What did Balaam just do? God did appear to him, right? What did God tell him? Don't go to their land. Is that all? Do not curse them. Mistake number one, Balaam comes back to these people and he only tells them half of what God said. God won't let me go back to your land. But he didn't say, I'm not allowed to curse them. He's cutting God's message short from the beginning. He's politicizing, if you will. And it's going to become a path of destruction for Balaam. If God gives a person a message, tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We're learning from Balaam, don't play this game of telling a half-truth. The half-truth, I'm not allowed to go with you. The whole truth, and God says, I can't curse Israel. And so, it comes again. Balak is going to send another offer. In verse 15, Balak sent again unto the princes more and more honorable than they. So he sends another embassy, a group to come and visit with Balaam. And they came to Balaam and they said, Thus saith Balak to the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me. For I will promote thee to a very great honor. I will do whatsoever thou sayest unto me. Come therefore, I pray thee, curse this people. Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of my, the Lord my God to do less or to do more. Now therefore, I pray you, tarry ye here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Uh-oh. What's Balaam done now? He's in a conversation he doesn't have to have. He already knows the answer of God, right? How many times does God have to say, don't go with him and don't curse him? Once. Thank you, Steve. And he's enlarged the conversation. This embassy has come now, and they're, I mean, they're loaded. They've got all this opulence, and they're promising him great treasure and great regard. He's going to be a somebody. And he enlarges the conversation. He doesn't just refuse it. He says, you know, if he gave me all of his money, He's, he's bargaining it up higher. He's ratcheting up. Balaam's heading for trouble. And so we find his second error is that he knew what God was spoken, but he lets that embassy stay the night, and God had already told him that Israel should not be cursed. So watch what God does this night. Verse 20, God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, if the men come to call thee, rise and go with them, but yet the word which I shall say unto thee, thou sh that shalt thou do. All right, there are those who will say Balaam is about to step into God's permissive will. Out of God's perfect will, into God's permissive will. There are others who will hastily say, whoa, 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 there's no such thing as God's permissive will. But we can at least agree to this. God doesn't forbid people from sinning. He gives us commandments not to sin, but he doesn't put brick walls in the way. And this man is bound and determined to go down a pathway of sin, and God has allowed the wall to come down. You can go with him, but you have to do what I say. And so we discover that God allows him to get involved in the trip, and as he goes with them, Balaam rose up, verse 21, in the morning saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. And God's anger was kindled because he went, 
And the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. He, wait a minute, he was given permission, wasn't he? Yes and no. So he's in what some would call the permissive will of God, and God says, sends this donkey and puts this donkey in uh, a greater discernment position than Balaam. As the ass saw the angel of the Lord, verse 23, standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand, the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. He left the road into the field. Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. The angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards as the wall was by the side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. And he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either the right hand or the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled. He smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam finds himself in a conversation with the discerning ass. I would there were a sword in my hand, he says in verse 29, for now I would kill you. And the ass said unto Balaam, am I not thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and the sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down his head and fell flat upon his face. Balaam was ready to kill his donkey. The donkey was able to give him the revelation of God. And God meets again in verse 36 with Balaam. We read, I'm sorry, Balaam meets with Balak in verse 36. And Balak heard what Balaam, that Balaam was come. He went out to meet him in a city of Moab, which is in the border of Arnon, which is the utmost coast. And Balak said unto Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to thee to call? Wherefore camest thou not unto me? Am I not able indeed to promote thee to honor? And Balaam said unto Balak, Lo, I, I come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that will I speak. Here's what becomes confusing about Balaam. He's always saying this. I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. I, I'm going to be God's servant. And somewhere along the line you want to go, right. But you're disobedient. And your disobedience is, le- and, and you're materialistic. You're being enticed by this opportunity for fame and fortune. Balaam went with Balak, and they came unto Kirjath Huzoth, and Balak offered oxen. So the king now is offering oxen and sheep, and sent to Balaam and to the princes that were with him. It came to pass that on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up into the high places of Baal. That ought to cause you to wonder what's going on with Balak. What's he doing in the high places of Baal, a false god, that thence he might see the uttermost parts of the people? They're taking a, a vision of the children of Israel who are there in the valley. And you'll remember that in chapter 23, Balak, or Balaam rather, <laughs> Balaam is going to bless Israel and bless Israel and bless Israel. In fact, he's going to share some things about Israel that are not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. He's going to share the, the prophecy of a star rising out of Judah and a scepter being in his hand. And that same prophecy is going to be used by Luke and Matthew to speak about the coming of Christ. That prophecy comes from Balaam. So here's where we kind of scratch our heads a little bit and, says, and, and ask ourselves the question, so what is it that 
causes Balaam's story to be in the Bible and what are we to learn from it? He sounds like he's unwilling to compromise. After all, back here in chapter 22 and verse 18, he said, if Balak give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or to do more. He sounds ever so firm, so uncompromising. And yet God speaks to him again and again, and he doesn't, he doesn't ever curse Israel. So now let's read what the New Testament says about him. I'll just read three passages where Balaam is referenced in the New Testament, and I think we can figure out what's happening in the Old. Okay, here's 2 Peter 2 and verse 15. 2 Peter 2 15 talks about those who have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. That's the New Testament telling us about Balaam in the Old. He loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was driven by materialistic gain. Jude says in verse 11, Woe unto them, for they've gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Materialism. He was in ministry, if you will, for the money. He was a materialist. Now listen to Revelation 2 and verse 14. For I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there those that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak, the king of the Moabites, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Wait a minute. Here's the problem. In Genesis, or in Numbers 22 and 23, you never read about Balaam saying, hey, Balak, come here. Here's what you need to do. Infiltrate Israel. Teach them to eat idol meat and teach them to commit fornication with the Moabite women. You never have that record. That record is given to us, though, in the book of Revelation chapter 2. So somewhere outside of the time that Balaam is standing up and talking about all these blessings, he's having a private conversation over here with Balak and saying, you know what, you're never going to defeat these people. God said they're not going to be cursed. Here's what I would suggest. How did he get that idea? Where did it come from? If you come over to me to, with me to Numbers chapter 23, there's a key to this passage in Numbers chapter 23. Balaam is talking about Israel, and he says in verse 9, For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob? That aloneness of Israel that he saw that they were not intermingled with the other nations, that was the holiness of Israel. And he got a vision of the holiness of Israel and understood where their vulnerability would be. And Balaam, this prophet of the Old Testament, gives to Balak how to destroy Israel. Get them eating at your table and get them fornicating with your daughters. We know that from Revelation chapter 2. Now here comes the challenges. One, God spoke to Balaam, right? He spoke to him three times. How are, you, how are you going to call this man a false prophet or an, an unsaved man? Well, God spoke to a number of lost people. God spoke to Belshazzar with his finger on the wall. God spoke to King Abimelech when Abraham had let his wife go fraternize with the king. God spoke to Pharaoh. God spoke to an ass. God has spoken to a number of those who are not redeemed. God spoke to Balaam. 
I'm not troubled by that. God's not. Well, wait a minute. Balaam told the truth. The prophecies that he shared are the word of God. That's right. And that's not the one and only time in the Bible where those who are not righteous are sharing truth. So Balaam received visions from God, spoke the truth of God, but Balaam was not on God's side. And how does it end for Balaam? Well, it ends for Balaam with Balaam actually dying under the swords of the Israelites. In Numbers chapter 31, Numbers chapter 31, you'll find the death of Balaam being recorded and not in virtue. Numbers 31 and verse 8, they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zor and Hur, Reba, five kings of Midian. Balaam also the son of Beor they slew with the sword. Balaam ends in a shameful way Something we skipped over along the way when it comes to Balaam. Balaam was a materialist. And in the end, when we come to chapter 24, I'm sorry, chapter 25 of Numbers. Look at Numbers chapter 25 and we'll end with this. Israel abode in Shedem. And the people began to do what? They committed whoredoms with the daughters of Moab. They called the people unto the sacrifices that are gods. And the people did eat. They're, they're eating the idol meat. They're committing fornication. They joined themselves unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Where did Israel get that idea? Balaam gave it to Balak. Balak caused the children of Israel to be integrated. And you remember the story of chapter 25. It says in verse 6, Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel, who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle. Verse 7, and when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose up among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and went after the man of Israel in the tent, and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly, and the plague was ceased. So what did Balaam do? Yeah, he was an unregenerate prophet who, for a materialistic gain, heard the visions that God gave to him, was honest with the visions, but over here he was creating a side deal. There's a lot to learn from Balaam. You don't mess around when God says yes or no, it's yes or no. You don't mess around in ministry for money, and you certainly don't tolerate an integrationism that's going to bring a pollution to the people of God. Both the people of God will suffer for it, and so will Balaam. And so the answer, a long answer to a short question, I kind of warned you it would be, but he's an interesting character in the Old Testament. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.